Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to an amazing Saturday session with a new surah, Surah Al-Hajj. I'm so excited. Um, before we get started, I, I wanted to express um, some gratitude for some of the people here um, because this is actually today today's last in-person halakha for Ramin, our social media guru, who's been here with us for two years, and we're really proud to wish him um, a, a blessed send-off because he's heading to Harvard Divinity School. Um, and, you know, we're so proud. He's going on full scholarship and he's going to be representing um, all the knowledge he's picked up here. But we're ex especially grateful because certainly when we started this journey two years ago, people really didn't know what we were doing. They didn't know what Project Illumin was. We had a very um, small following on social me media, relatively speaking. I think our Instagram was maybe like, I don't know, 300 followers or something like that, something really small. And I just checked and we're well over 7,000, which um, followers, which is, I mean, not, not a lot, obviously, by, you know, people who have a lot of followers, but for what we do and for the, you know, like the advanced nature of, you know, this learning and, and people being willing to sit through, you know, four or five hour halakas and whatnot. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a big accomplishment. It takes a lot of investment of time, a lot of dedication, a lot of commitment. And Ramin really poured his heart and, you know, and effort and energy into growing that and our other social media presence. And he's just been such an, an, an important part of, you know, the growth of Usuli and helping people to understand what it is that we do. Because um, when people don't watch really long videos or excerpts or things like that, um, it's a challenge to try and cut, you know, little bits and pieces to give people a flavor of what we cover here. And so that was a lot of what um, Ramin did. And I'm extremely grateful because I feel like that really helped to plant seeds. Um, and even if um, people are not not necessarily watching you know the halakas as a result they know that this is something that we're doing and I hope and pray that you know when people are ready and they're on their journey and at that part where they're looking for something more than what they understand Islam to be that they'll remember Asuli and that's that's the importance of social media for our purposes and so I'm really grateful to all of the dedication that Ramin has poured into that and um, you know we'll miss him but we'll see him hopefully on the interactive group um, and you know he has committed to growing like the Suli watch group at Harvard so anyway um, just to, it's you know so it's a little bit sentimental for us because um, this is our last in person with him but anyway so I want to let people know and people have interacted with him on social media and stuff and so you know he's um, it's gonna be a loss for us um, but in, inshallah much better um, onward and upward for you know, education. Um, and also I wanted to thank um, Hiram, who is was also our summer intern, um, who is also at Harvard Divinity School, and he helped a lot with some of the different social media programs and research and things like that. So there's some longer term investment that he's given us. And so that, you know, I'm, I'm just really grateful. You know, it's, it's actually really, um, it, it says a lot for the work that we do that even people at, you know, Harvard are following and, 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 you know, invested in our work and, you know, they're coming and going and, you know, want to play a part. So, you know, we're grateful for that. Um, and as always, um, I have to call attention um, to the incredible khutbah. Every week, it just you know it just gets better and better always. Um, and it's it's important, obviously, with so much darkness in the world, um, to have you know Sheikh get up on the pulpit and just share light. So the the khutbah yesterday was called um, the Sunni, the Shi'i, and the gift of consciousness. And um, you know it's it was a very powerful and deep. Um, Khutbah, as always, um, you know, a very important message that God gives us um, the gift of consciousness for a very brief moment of time. It comes, it goes, and, you know, the, the question and the test is what do we do with that very brief moment of time that we have consciousness and our job of witnessing to truth 
Um, and so as part of that, I mean, you know, people have obviously um, are aware of the things happening this week or in the last, you know, 10 days that um, the four men, four Muslim men who were killed in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico, by another Muslim, you know, fellow Muslim brother who, um, from what I think the, you know, the public understanding at this point is that he um, was Sunni and he was unhappy about his daughter, um, I think, marrying a Shi'i, and so he decided to kill four other Shi'i Muslims. Um, and so that um, is devastating at so many levels and shocking um, and reveals truly the lack of knowledge and understanding um, of you know our faith and so uh, the, the khutbah was really powerful because Sheikh actually walked through that the difference between Sunni Shi'i also um, I wanted to call attention to a really important talk that uh, Sheikh gave several years ago at the Islamic Center of Southern California um, called the Sunni Shi'i divide and you know the, the best way to address these types of tragedies is through education and understanding um, and this, these are really powerful, um, you know, opportunities to learn more about what really is underlying this divide, and and should it be there, and how should we feel about it as ethical, you know, thinking Muslims. So if you go to, um, you know, the khutbah yesterday, and you look in the description, you'll also get the link to the actual talk that the sheikh gave um, at the Islamic Center. So I, I really. Um, really encourage people to watch that. And, you know, one of the most frustrating things that Sheikh continually points out about um, all of the things that happen in the world is the deafening silence of Muslims in the face of all of these sorts of tragedies. Um, and, you know, this, um, I mean, week, week after week, there are just things that go on. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of non-Muslim supporters or people on the front lines, lawyers, human rights activists. These are the people that are making a difference in our world for Muslims. It's not Muslims that come to the aid of other Muslims or are at the forefront of discussions or, you know, um, or at least not visibly so. I mean, obviously there are exceptions and there are people who are working very hard on the front lines. But in general, you know, it's, it is frustrating and hurtful to see that Muslims are not the ones that are really pushing these human rights and ethical issues forward. Um, and, you know, f as a convert, and this is, I just wanted to take this opportunity to once again um, talk about converts because, first of all, um, you know, I've spoken a lot about converts in the past. I've been a, a convert for 28 years. And in this work, I meet so many converts who are truly exceptional. They're exceptional human beings. They're smart, they're you know, social justice oriented, they're talented, they're dedicated. You know, and we as Muslims know, or at least I believe, that especially in a dark time like now, where it is so difficult to become Muslim, it is so difficult to choose to convert to a new religion, any religion, but especially Islam, that, you know, when God handpicks people and allows them to be on a path where they ultimately decide to convert, there is something very special about that. There is something important about that. And in my experience in meeting, you know, these thinking, talented, amazing converts, these are people that have the potential to turn things around in a very dark time. I mean, that is why they were selected. And they have a potential. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're gonna fulfill it. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, there, there is anything happening, but you know, we know, or I, I believe that it's an opportunity. And an opportunity also takes hold based on 
you know, it's con the context and, and the support and the people that aid in that person's mission. And so it's so frustrating for me as a convert when I meet beautiful, incredible people that, you know, have given up everything, honestly, even, you know, just even the accusation of sanity, right? Um, are, why are you insane and in choosing this, you know, god-awful religion? Um, but they do it because they believe. And that already shows an incredible amount of strength and, you know, independence of mind. Um, and then they come to, to you know, the, the mosque or, you know, to the Muslim community, and it's um, for two seconds, you know, they get a welcome and, oh, mashallah, you're amazing, you're a gift, God selected you. So people recognize that there's something special about a convert who's made that very important decision. But then what comes after that is truly shocking and, you know, leads oftentimes to people leaving the faith. So, you know, converts um, then, unfortunately, are left alone. They are not supported. They're either told... Um, or women are told, you know, you need to wear hijab. Um, men are often, or, you know, either are told you have to get married. Um, you know, they start getting exposed to all of these things and they get started, um, you know, they, they get talked down to. And it's an irony because if you think rationally about what it actually takes for someone in this day and age to, to convert, they will have to have invested so much time into learning, reflecting, prayer, you know, thinking about what does this mean for my life if I actually choose to become Muslim? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family, my friends? What are people going to think of me? How am I, you know, what am I getting into? Like people have, they don't know, but they are so moved by the beauty of the message and by their connection to God. And, you know, whatever it is, everyone has their own different experience. They ultimately make that decision. And I believe that these, these converts that come into our faith, this is an opportunity to help Islam move forward or you know, or it'll be nothing if, if Muslims um, don't embrace that opportunity and help those converts um, and, you know, make it like take this, this gift um, and turn it into something that is beautiful for the entire community and the entire population of Muslims. I mean, this is, this is you know, this is miraculous, right? Think about it. I mean, if you're going to convert in, in an age to be a Muslim, it is miraculous to do it now. Um, when things are so bad and so horrible. Um, and <clears throat> I want to say more about this, and you know, inshallah, you know, in another time, in another opportunity. But Muslims have to deal with, you know, a lot of racism. I mean, uh, converts have to deal with racism. They have to deal with um, Muslims ignoring them or telling them things that are backwards or telling them not to think, not to ask questions. It's, you know, so I, I'm actually here to just say, um, you know, I want to give converts, I guess, the advice. Um, you know, God brought you here, um, and stay strong, and don't let other Muslims or the things that you read about what happens in Muslim communities or the actions that are happening, things that appeal, you know, that that are ugly, don't let those things deter you. Stay strong. Um, your connection um, is with God, and we learn here in the Halakhas that. You know, Islam, God is calling for us as human beings to be an ideal human being, you know, at the forefront of everything, ethical, beautiful, moral. Um, and that's that's why we're all here. That's what we're all charged with. Um, and, you know, I'm sorry to tell you, but if you're going to convert, expect the worst. Um, Muslims are oftentimes not supportive of your experience. It's going to be lonely. It's going to be difficult. You're going to see things that don't make sense to you, that are irrational. People will talk to you as if you know nothing, um, as if you are, you know, 
the last man on on the totem pole. Um, there are all kinds of ethnic, you know, cultural. There's a lot of baggage that'll get thrown at you. Um, try to focus on what's beautiful and what's right. And God brought you for a purpose. Try to figure out what that purpose is, and you know, and fulfill it. Um, and inshallah, I hope that the people that do remain, that, that don't leave, um, can help move things forward. And I wanted to end, and I'm sorry, this is kind of like, it's, it's born from frustration because I feel that I oftentimes see Muslims in the news doing things and I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, okay, Salman Rushdie, right? How many Muslims are celebrating the fact that Salman Rushdie was attacked um, alhamdulillah, there are a lot of Muslims that have come forward and said this is wrong, this is unethical, and all of that. But the fact that there are still people that remain that say this is a great thing that he was attacked and lost his eye and was stabbed and all of that is really sobering and um, and is a sad indication of where we are. But I want to end actually on a high note. The thing that was really beautiful that one of the most talented converts I've met of late contributed to yesterday's khutbah, if you heard it, was this beautiful adhan at the beginning. And people know that, you know, I often, I give the adhan usually in the beginning, and um, it's really on principle because, you know, female voices should be heard. Sheikh has talked about this in the past. Um, but yesterday's adhan took it to another level. Um, I got this beautiful message. It said, um, thank you for sharing. Um, I had shared some videos of this incredible convert that I met with Witsky Marison. She has an absolutely beautiful voice. Did she also give the adhan yesterday for the chutbah? If so, it was so, so beautiful. I've never heard anything like it before. It is converts like her and yourself who bring more beauty into our religion that keeps the light of Islam shining. And that's really the message that I want to impart is that if you meet a convert, think about why was this person, why did this person make this decision? What did it take for a person to make this decision? And what does this person have to go through now that they've made this decision? Um, how welcoming are Muslims to converts? And what can we do um, to elevate people who made this very difficult decision? And you know, what are the talents they have? What do they bring? And I want to end by playing this because in every other space, you will not hear an event like this without a whole cacophony of people who come out of the woodwork claiming it's haram, it's ugly, it's, you know, whatever, whatever they will say about it. It's singing, God forbid, it's a female voice, you know, all the things that we know get thrown at us. But I challenge you, if we want to be at the forefront of humanity and move Islam forward and actually make a change, we have to accept that these are divine gifts that God gives listen to this incredible event and tell me that this is not divine and not a sign for all of us to embrace something better, strive for something better, and try and do something to pull ourselves out of the darkness that has become the current status of Islam in our world. So here it is.
If you want to hear it again, um, go to the chutbah um, on our, our YouTube channel. Um, you know, Witsky's voice has brought me to tears so many times this week because she's actually visiting us and we've been um, really just benefiting from her divine gift. And it's truly that. It's a divine gift and it's something that God gave her. God gave us you know, her conversion as a potential. She's also a brilliant scholar. Um, so hopefully, I mean, you know, more more on Whitsky later. She's, if you look her up, Whitsky Marison, W-I-E-T-S-K-E, Marison, M-E-R-I-S-O-N. She has a nasheed called um, La ilaha illallah. It's the Shahada um, nasheed, which is literally the most beautiful nasheed I've ever heard in my life. Um, and it's something that um, brought me to tears several times and brought many of us to tears. Um, and again, it's, you know, you, you cannot help but deny when Allah gives someone a gift like that and then brings someone like that to Islam. And you, you have to ask the question, why? Especially in a time like this. And how many other converts who are exceptional and brilliant, one of them even, you know, Joe here who is the editor of our Tafsir project. 
and you know and Hiram at Harvard who is incredible I mean they're just there's so many that have just come on our path and it's like God hasn't given up on Muslims yet when I meet people like this but I ask myself what do Muslims as a community do to welcome these gifts and elevate them and support them and help them meet their full potential because what else do we need we need help we need exceptional people we need people who are brave and not scared to say you know what i know if i convert to islam my whole world will change i don't know what that looks like but i don't care i'm going to do it and then i'm going to serve god with everything that i have tell me who else do you want helping to push things forward. And so what is our role as a Muslim community to support this group of people? So the next time you meet a convert, get to know them, ask them their story, find out what their talent is, find out what you can do to support them. Don't start forcing them to think about ritual things like covering and who are they going to marry and you know all of that garbage. They're human beings and we are called here as human beings to be the best that we can be, regardless of our label. And so this is just, I have to say this because I am, I am so like tired of the stupidity that, you know, converts get exposed to, get thrown at them. And this was just a reminder of how special these people are. So, you know, let's, let's, take hold of this gift that God has given us and, and see what we can do to make our entire situation better. And thank you. I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> and with that, alhamdulillah, I'm so excited for Surah Al-Hajj. Um, this is a heavy surah um, with a very um, heavy message to come. Um, inshallah, I'm, I'm so excited. So thank you, Sheikh. Thank you for being with us. سبحان الله العلي العظيم والحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة والسلام والتسليم على الحبيب المصطفى محمد المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين اوكي سو ام سوره الحش in the past i've mentioned that there are surah in the quran that are like constitutional surah they are foundational surah they are sore that define the compass for Islam. Um, and that you cannot really be, you cannot afford as a Muslim not, you cannot afford to, to ignore or not fully um, you know, absorb the message of the Sur. And the Sur is what I believe the Quran calls Al-Muhkamat. 
المحكمات meaning they are the core they're the heart they are the sort that define your ethics define your marching orders that define your goal your purpose and Surah Al-Hajj is one of them um, it is um, as we will see its message is um, essential um, so first let's put it in context as we have been doing so like a lot of other surah in the Quran there is an interesting debate about when it was revealed and um, so in, in a lot of the sources that attempt to set the chronology of the Quran um, Surah Al-Hajj is sandwiched is claimed to have been sandwiched between Surah Al-Nur and Surah Al-Munafiqun um, now these reports that tell you that it was revealed after Surah Al-Nur and before Surah Al-Munafiqun um, if accurate then Surah Al-Hajj by definition would be a surah that is revealed in the mid-Medinian uh, period so that would mean that Surah Al-Hajj was revealed around the fifth Hijri year and indeed a scholar like a Suyuti for instance a famous Shafi'i scholar claims in his tafsir the Surah Al-Hajj is a mid-Medinian surah and he says that the, the vast majority of its of its ayat were revealed in the mid-Medinian period and then he argues that there are some however ayat that were revealed um, as is you find often these claims about the, the surah and the Quran that you know that well this ayah was revealed in the last year of the Prophet's life this ayah was revealed in, in even in Mecca and and I am very skeptical about these types of claims that you know the, the claims that well you, you ayat were revealed in, in in with huge gaps between one ayah and another and then it was the prophet at the very end that said well this ayah that was revealed you know uh, 10 years before or this ayah that was revealed five years later should go into this chapter of the Quran um, I'm very skeptical of these not that I reject them but I am always very cautious about these types of reports and I investigate them very carefully and indeed 
we have reports, we have a hadith that claim that Surah Al-Hajj, most of Surah Al-Hajj at least, was revealed around the time of Ghazwat Banu Al-Mustalik. And if so, that would indeed make it a mid-Medinian surah around the 5th Hijri year. And it would indeed then make it reasonable that Surah Al-Hajj was revealed between Surah Al-Nur and Surah Al-Munafiqun. However, I believe that all of that is wrong. Um, it is not a mid-Medinian surah. Partly because of the content of Surah Al-Hajj itself. And when you study the narrative of Surah Al-Hajj, um, as we will see, there are ample indicators that it was revealed much earlier than that, that it was not revealed uh, around Ghazwat Banu al-Mustalaq. And even the reports that mention that Surah al-Hajj are revealed around Ghazwat Banu al-Mustalaq are problematic at many different levels. They, they, they are not reliable reports. We cannot rely on them. So when was Surah al-Hajj revealed? Well, it was revealed when Muslims were first given permission to use force against their oppressors. And there are credible reports, in my view, far more credible than the reports that claim that it was revealed in mid-Medinian period, that say that Surat al-Hajj was revealed in this critical period from the Hizra, from Mecca, to the settlement in Medina. So that would make it an early Medinian surah. Um, even some have said that it was some of it was revealed even in Mecca before or during or shortly after the Hijra. And as we will see, this actually makes a lot of sense considering the message of Surah Al-Hajj. So it is important that as we go through through Surah Al-Hajj to bear in mind that it was revealed before a lot of the surah that we've discussed in the Medinian period. Um, there is an interesting question whether it was whether it was revealed after Baqarah or before Baqarah. And in my view, and Allah knows best, 
is that it was revealed shortly before Baqarah. That Baqarah is the first fully Medinian surah. Al-Hajj is a transition surah between Mecca and Medina, but before Baqarah. Interestingly enough, as we will see, um, because it is a, a foundational surah, one of these core surahs, um, Although I don't have I don't have proof to 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 support this, but I think that um, how do I put it um, that part of the reason that people argued that it was revealed in mid Medinian period instead of the very early Medinian period um, is that for especially among the late converts to Islam uh, Surat al-Hajj is a, a, is a bit overwhelming um, it It, it is about your entire understanding for the reason of your presence on this earth, as we will see, inshallah. Okay. Yeah, oh. Well, maybe. Um, yeah, the, the very the there is a there is a famous hadith. The hadith that all those who said that Surat al-Hajj was revealed in the mid Medina period uh, around Ghazwat Banu Mustaliq rely on what I believe is a deeply problematic hadith. Uh, the hadith, uh, I'll paraphrase it because it's, it's long, but in which the Prophet ﷺ it's a, it reportedly starts talking about um, what percentage of his companions the percentage of those who go to Jannah, how many of them are going to be his contemporaries? In other words, his companions. And the hadith, it's rather long, you know, starts off by saying, you know, oh, it's going to be, you know, one quarter of those who enter Jannah will be, 
you guys. And then it says, no, it's going to be one third. No, it's going to be one half. And then starts saying that, well, you know, there is a certain number of you will, who will enter Jannah without accountability. In other words, without going through hisab, without going through um, the, the, the trial process, if you will. Um, and it's going to be a set number of you. There's going to be 70,000 of you who, and then a man uh, says to the Prophet, uh, you know, uh, uh, am I, uh, basically asked the Prophet ﷺ to pray for uh, that he is one of them. And the Prophet says, you are one of them. And then a man known as Okasha, who is a low-tier companion, says, can you pray that I'm one of them? And the Prophet says, well, I'm sorry because um, the man who just I just prayed for uh, beat you to it. So in other words, you know, the numbers are full now. The, the, the house is packed, so you're out of luck. And, and remarkably, you find that hadith in so many contemporary, although it was designated as gharib in the science of hadith and uh, it, it, in its isnad are majahil, in other words, in, in its snads are, are unknown transmitters. Um, in, you find it in contemporary books of theology, even in books about Islam written in English everywhere. And that was one of the things that was really, you know, astounding. What is this fascination um, that contemporary Muslims have to, to pluck, to take a hadith that has a great deal of issues surrounding it, and a hadith that makes it sound like whoever, you know, this process is controlled somehow by the Prophet, and that um, it, has a, it has even a whimsical element to it. And to cite it and teach it and discuss it as if it is beyond reproach. And that is the hadith, and interestingly, that people rely on to say that Surah Al-Hajj is mid-Medinian, that it was revealed around Ghazwat Ben al-Mustalaq, because that hadith claims that after Ghazwat Ban al-Mustalaq, the Prophet ﷺ recites most of Surah Al-Hajj to his followers, to his companions, and then the interaction takes place about, uh, you know, 70,000 will go, will, will be, or I forget now, it's 70,000 or 7,000, I don't remember exactly. Um, will enter without any accountability, etc., etc. And since this hadith is problematic, the entire narrative about Surah Al-Hajj being from that period or that, you know, mid-fifth Hijri, and I think once you understand the message of Surah Al-Hajj, you'll see why it matters. Uh, all the foundational sore, the, the core constitutional sore, are revealed early on because they're anchoring sores. 
or earlier on. Okay, so let's then delve in. Um, with this surah, which is 70, 79 or 76, 78 uh, ayahs, I, I'm not going to go ayah by ayah. Um, because we don't really need to. But I will focus on the ayat that communicate the essential message of Surah Al-Hajj. Um, I'm going to, I want to approach it a bit differently this time because I'm trying to think in, in, in terms of pedagogy of how to, to communicate the message. Perhaps it will help us at the beginning to get a sense of the outline. Then we'll walk through it. So there are some essential core ideas here. Allah will alert us early on in the surah, verse 5, that your own life is like a journey. In this journey, you have like an arc. You start out with an open consciousness and subhanAllah that Surah Al-Hajj comes after the khutbah yesterday. I didn't plan it this way. Um, then some of you will grow to the epoch of, of your strength and then some of you will grow old enough so that you return to a state of weakness after a state of strength. In fact, you might even be returning to a childlike condition from you start from childhood to childlike, with senility and lack of ability and from independence to dependence again. While some of you will not reach this stage, but there is a journey. And this is communicated early on in the surah. There is a journey. 
Now, at the same time, Surah Al-Hajj will flag to us, and this is around middle of the Surah, the idea of Baytullah, the bait, and the 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 these simple words, bait, which even before Islam in Aramaic and in Hebrew and in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament to some extent, um, the home is a critical human concept and the fact that Allah comes and says there is a space that Allah refers to as Beiti God's home and then also calls that same bait and in surah this is only happens in surah al-hajj al-bayt al-atiq and normally bayt al-atiq is translated as the old home but as we will see it is like a primordial home it is a timeless home it is a home beyond time. Divinity is what enables something spatially on earth to exist as if beyond and before earth and after earth and as if supra-earth. With that is the primordial call of the Prophet Ibrahim to that space. Surah Al-Hajj then will take us to an idea will, will, will inshallah, will, will, will unpack it. Again, around the mid-surah to a deep philosophical understanding of why at times we need to resort to violence. juxtaposed as we will see that in the same way that Allah gives permission under certain circumstances for us to resort to force that force is never limitless and in fact understanding that 
basis that God accepts as sacred. In other words, if you human beings are doing things the right way, you would never allow your earthly disputes to extend to these paces that always remind you, that always remind you, even when you have to resort to war, that it's not about you. And you are not simply free to do whatever you please. That you, you, you are dealing with a life, an existence, a space that is owned by God. And so the idea that, well, you know, we are, we can, we are free to do whatever is necessary. With implications, for instance, like, you know, we are free to use a nuclear weapon. It's foundationally at odds. Now, with core, with sort of coming in and saying, What Allah wants from Muslims when they establish a social order is to seek two things. Tamkeen, and we'll talk about what Tamkeen is, and Ta'zim. And we'll talk about what Ta'zim is. So any order these are essential constitutional concepts for this order. And we'll, we'll inshallah, we'll, we'll, we'll flush this out. Both Tamkeen and Ta'zim are foundationally anchored to Taqwa. And Surat Al-Hajj sort of gets you to think of it is as it, well, and I, I mean, I'll, I'll just say it and then we'll have to work through it. Your the Hajj, the space in Mecca, is symbolic for so many things. The arc of your life is but a journey to the house of God. It is not just that oh, well, I go to Hajj and I perform these, ritual, these rituals. But it is, it is like asking, what is the journey of your life about? What is the bait 
that you ultimately establish? Is it a bait? Is it a, an abode of vanities? An abode of idiosyncrasies? Or is it a abode that honors what that space in Mecca is supposed to honor? Now, the other thing about Surah Al-Hajj, which inshallah we'll talk about, is this is the Surah that has the famous issue of the Satanic Verses. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. And subhanAllah, it is in terms of the Quran itself, as we'll discuss, I believe it, 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 the, the, it is entirely a marginal issue to Surah Al-Hajj and to the Quran itself. It was only made a big issue, a great issue by modern Muslims and not in the Quranic discourse itself as we will see. Okay, just remember the sort of major signposts and as we will walk through them, inshallah. Okay. So, remember this. Surah Al-Hajj begins with the concept of taqwa. Ya ayyuhal nasu, uttaqu rabbakum, inna zalzalat as-sa'ati shay'un azim. Allah reminding you, taqwa is core. Now, let's see how Muhammad, Muhammad Asad translates it as, be conscious of your sustainer, for verily the violent convulsions of the last hour be a, will be an awesome thing. It makes a lot of sense the way Muhammad Asa translates it, because taqwa law is not a fear of God. Taqwa law is not just obedience of God. Taqwa law is if you the closest thing that comes to it is to be ever conscious of God. A constant state of dhikr is taqwa Allah. When you achieve tamkeen, and we'll talk about what tamkeen is on on earth for the right purposes, for the right purposes, that's taqwa Allah. When you have ta'zim sha'airillah, and we'll talk about what that is, inshallah, that's taqwa Allah. Every time, if, if, if you pursue knowledge and you pursue it because you believe God, you, you do it out of a desire to serve God, 
That's taqwa Allah. As we will see, Surah Al-Hajj comes and later on will tell us that to be in a state of jihad, in a constant jihad, is taqwa Allah. So that opening, as we will see, is actually quite important. That, Ya ayyuhannasu taqwa rabbakum. What it's all about is that you live your life, that journey that we'll talk about, with God, with being ever conscious of God. Okay. Now, and in, and note that regardless of who you, you know, how your regardless of what your your the, your vanities allow you to think, uh, the way that your vanities swell your ego up, right? And so, with a swollen ego, swollen by vanities, you might forget that about the hereafter and the final day. But whatever it is, when you place yourself in the context of the totality of God's creation, from birth to death to resurrection to the to the final day to the hereafter. You are a very small thing. Now, and be mindful of the fact, that it is a common thing for human beings to become distracted by the only animal that God gave the power of Jidan to. Only human beings on the animal kingdom on this earth have the power not just to disobey, but to justify their disobedience and justify a complete rebellion. Now, of course, the, you know, the others who have that power are the, the jinn who, but, but there we're not talking about, you know, we're talking about those who were intended to inhabit this earth as, as from, as, you know, certain class of creation. But, so, anyway, the fact that there are, many tons of people who will lose themselves in this jidan, this disputation and argumentation. Muhammad Asad uh, translates it as um, there are among men there is many one who argues about God. 
Yeah, I mean, Jidan is, is argument, it's disputation, it's um, the art of the art of debate, the art of cynicism, the art of counterpoints, counter-narrative, all of that comes under Jidan. And the truth of the matter is, it is whether they actually follow a, a satanic force or as if they follow a satanic force is irrelevant. Uh, Muhammad Asad will have, uh, I'm sure, an unusual... Yeah, no, actually he doesn't. It says... Without having, so yet among men there are many who argue about God without having any knowledge and follow every rebe rebellious satanic force. Close enough. Um, that is unavoidable. And as we, as we will see, ultimately nothing is going to be, it's going to change that reality. It is you and only you have the ability to choose not to fall prey to these distractions. Okay. Those who, it's like we've talked about before, those who are committed to um, skepticism, It, skepticism could, could become, while sometimes skepticism plays a healthy role, and sometimes it's even like salt, it's, it's, it's necessary for wisdom, but it is also addictive. And once you catch that addiction, there's no cure. You, you are skeptical for the sake of being skeptical. And that is like a demonic force. It, it, the, the earmark of the demonic is that it, it be, ultimately it responds, stops responding to reason and beauty. Regardless of how you approach it, it is no longer responsive. Okay. Then we get to five which I refer to as the arc, arc verse. So, يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ وَإِنْ كُنْتُمْ فِي رَيْبٍ مِنْ بَعْثِ فَإِنَّ خَلَقْنَاكُمْ مِنْ تُرَابٍ ثُمَّ مِنْ نُطْفَةٍ ثُمَّ مِنْ عَلَقَةٍ ثُمَّ مِنْ وُضْغَةٍ مُخَلَّقَةٍ وَغَيْرُ مُخَلَّقَةٍ لِنُبَيِّنَ لَكُمْ وَنُكِرُّ فِي الْأَرْحَامِ مَا نَشَاءَ إِلَى أَجَلٍ مُسَمَّى ومنكم من يتوفى ومنكم من يرد إلى أرض للعمر لكي لا يعلم من بعد علم شيئا وترى الأرض هامدة فإذا أنزلنا عليها الماء اهتزت ربط وأنبتت من كل زوج بهيج. This is verse five. If you are doubt, uh, if you are in doubt of the as to the truth of resurrection, remember that we have created every one of you out of the elements of the soil of this earth, the dust of this earth. 
then out of a drop of sperm, then out of a germ cell, then out of an embryonic lump complete in itself and yet incomplete so that we might make your origin clear unto you. And whatever we will to be born, we cause to rest in the mother's wombs to, to, for a term set by us, and then we bring forth an infant and allow you to live so that some of you might attain to maturity, for among you are such as are caused to die in childhood, just as many a one of you is reduced in old age to a most abject state, ceasing to know anything of what he or she once knew. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, all human beings, if you are in doubt as to resurrection, consider that the earth is dry and lifeless, and then Allah sends water upon it. It stirs and swells and puts forth every kind of plant. So, first, alerting you to what I refer to as to the arch of life itself, that this remarkable mystery of consciousness the growth of the intellect the diminution of the intellect the amazing mystery of the cycles of life and death which we ultimately are a part of So, keep this image in mind. Okay. ذلك بأن الله هو الحق وأنه يحيي الموتى وأنه على كل شيء قدير. The in these cycles, the core reality is the lasting anchoring truth is Allah al-Haq, Allah the truth. The whole cycles of life and death cease to be anchored in any truth if you take God out of the equation. Then it just becomes a cycle, not anchored in a truth but anchored in the truth of the cycle itself, which is, it, which means, if, if you're anchored in the truth of a thing, in itself, means you're anchored in nothing. It's a, it's a what do you call it, a, um, not a totality, a, um, a totality. So if the, cycle, if the cycle is the truth, it's a tautology, then there is no truth. So the cycle itself, the anchor of the, the truth that the cycle is anchored is Allah al-Haq. Okay. And Allah again alerts us that although these things ought to be very obvious 
why taqwa Allah? Why be mind, ever mindful and ever conscious of God? Because if you want meaning in the, the cycle that you, you perceive all the time, well, there is no meaning without God. Yet, Allah alert reminded us that regardless, there are people who argue. And Allah underscores what they're arguing about is they're, they're speculating about what they don't know. It's like people who live in one dimension in a multi-dimensional universe arguing that what is true for that one dimension is true for all. They argue, they are speculating about what they don't know. People who argue that God doesn't exist they are arguing about the nature of the incomprehensible to them. Time. Where time comes from, where time goes, what does it mean to have timeless time? Because if there is no God, and time just keeps marching on and on and on, without an anchoring truth, then the truth, the only truth available for that time, is the truth of itself which is, again, a tautology. It's no truth at all. Are you following what I'm saying? So if there is no truth at all, then you are arguing about a speculative matter. And you just... And yet, so many human beings fall prey to that jidal. They don't know but they argue about what they don't know. And so many, in fact, the Quran itself tells us that the majority of people will be led astray by that jidal about what they do not know. That's the nature of things. So, They argue without ilm, without knowledge, or huda, or guidance, or even... Kitab al-Munir here is without even... It's, Kitab here is not just a book. It's not just a book of, of enlightenment. Although that's the literal world meaning. But a revelation is an external source to the mundane reality provided by materialism. It's a revelation, is an intervention from a paradigm, from outside the paradigm. So God is saying they are arguing without external help. All they have is the reason that they were born with. That reason is locked within the terms of the reality that you guys are born into. It's like saying there are let, let's let's for, let's pretend that well, let's not pretend but it's it's the truth but there are multi dimensions. All you know is the reason that was given to you that is capable of working in the dimension in which you were born. And yet you are using this reason and you are relying on it to interpret everything. And 
when you do so, you are speculating about what you don't know. If you have external help from the dimensions which you do not know, in other words, there is an intervention from in a dimension other than the dimension in which you are locked into, then that is that external help offers the possibility of knowledge. But what these people are doing is that they don't have external revelation or external guidance, and yet they speculate as if they know what they actually do not know. And that is why then you see 9, which follows, ثَانِي عِطْفَهُ ثَانِي عِطْفِهِ Actually, according to the reading, عِطْفَهُ or عِطْفِهِ لِيُضِلَّ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ لَهُ فِي الدُّنْيَا خِزِّ وَنُذِيقُهُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ عَذَابَ الْحَرِيقِ Now, of course, as often you find... Okay, so 9... Muhammad as a translator, uh, disgrace of the spirit is in store for him in this world. No way. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, um, and yet among men, there is many one that argues about God without having any knowledge of God, without any guidance and without any light giving away, scornfully turning aside from the truth so as to lead others astray from the path of God. This grace of the Spirit is in store for him in this world, and in the day of resurrection, we shall make him taste suffering through fire. So, thani atfihi, or atfahu, that, that intent for prideful reasons, for egotistical reasons, of guiding others astray, In the hadith, I mean, in the tafsir literature, as you would often find that when Muslims find an expression like this, they would start speculating as to who was the intended person. So then, you know, some say, well, this is uh, the intended person was Al Mudar ibn Harith or Al Walid ibn Mughira or Utbah ibn Rabi'ah. All who were individuals known for being very argumentative, being eloquent, and for you know laying out protracted arguments why all of this is nonsense. But it it, it I think it it um, it takes away from the power of the ayah to say that it was it was intended to to address any particular person. In fact, I mean, we don't have a reliable report that it meant either Mughira or, uh, or what's his name, Al Walid ibn Al Mughira or or ibn Rabi'ah or or, or or it is talking about a prototype. It is talking about a kind. Okay. Okay. Even the expression that 
this is what you've done to yourself in terms of your fate in the hereafter and that God is not unjust to human beings is an indication that this is a general ayah that applies generally to a prototype. Okay. Now, who are the types of people? Who are the types of people that are often swayed by arguments by a what appears to be an intelligent argument or by skeptical questions because they have no certitude of themselves the answer ومن الناس من يعرض الله على حرف فإن أصابه خير اطمأن به وإن أصابته فتنة انقلب على وجهه خسر الدنيا والآخرة ذلك هو الخسران المبين So there are there are people and whenever Allah say, and there are people meaning reflect if you are in this category the, 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 a bad student of the Quran would read an ayah and say this is describing someone else a good student of the Quran you read an ayah and say this potentially describes me there are a people who an amazing expression it's like you worship God at an edge if things in life are going your way you are fine with God and you might even not be responsive to these smart sounding arguments skeptical sounding arguments because things are going your way but when things get difficult you are very quick to say where is God why is God allowing this to happen to me and then the jidal these points about the 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 argument the argumentative folks you become far more receptive to it now Surah Al-Hajj is revealed at this time it is precisely the right question and it will remain the right question for Muslims throughout do you worship God at an edge is your relationship with God like you construct a relationship with another human being? It is about what you get out of this relationship. So many relationships 
in human beings, they're defined in terms of what do I get out of it? I know no deep truth about you. I don't, in fact, whether I love you or not is not based on any real knowledge of your soul, of your spirit, of your aura, of your truth. I basically react to what I get from the relationship I have out with you. To the utility I achieved from this relationship. If I'm getting something out of it, I'm okay with you. If I don't like what I get, I start having questions about the relationship I have. So many relationships with human beings are exactly that. We are very good at window dressing. We are very good at philosophizing. Oh, you know, we wed forever, blah, blah, blah. But that's why divorce rates are so high. And that's why when the window dressing is out, people are so vicious in divorce courts. Because they never married the soul. They were always married to actually themselves. It's what they're getting out of the relationship. And as long as you are an instrument serving this narcissistic union, it worked. But the minute that the expectations of the narcissistic union are frustrated, there's no deeper truth. There is no Allah al-Haqq. When your relationship, now here's the scary thing though. The sad truth is most of those who say they believe their relationship with Allah is like their relationship with other human beings. It's a narcissistic relationship. But That is not what Iman, true Iman, is about. It is not about what do I get out of this. It is, that is why when we say it is about Allah al-Haqq. And we'll see what sort of, okay, tells us more about this. Okay. Now, there's a very interesting point. Come to 12. Okay. So, look at verse 12. Muhammad Asa says, By behaving thus, he invokes instead of God something that can neither harm nor benefit him. And this indeed is the utmost one can go astray. Now, Quranic commentators paused at this because the, the grammatical, the grammar here, يَدْعُوا مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ مَا لَا يَضُرُّهُ وَمَا لَا يَنْفَعُهُ ذلك هو الضلال البعيد 
يدعو لمن ضره أقرب من نفعه لبئس المولى ولبئس العشير and sometimes he invokes another human being one that is far more likely to cause harm than benefit vile indeed is such a patron and vile the follower okay yeah the, uh, the, uh, the issue is indicated by Muhammad Asad's bracketing of invoking another human being. What Quranic commentators pause that is many were tempted to think that Allah here is talking about or took this to, to, to mean that Allah is talking about well, you're not worshipping God, so you're worshipping the idols. And God is talking about that the that when you worship idols, that um, you are worshipping those who can neither benefit you or harm you, and they're actually, in, in reality, they're more harmful than good. But as later Quranic commentators, and Muhammad Asad as well, noticed, The grammar here is no, it's not, Allah is not talking about idols. Allah is talking about still those who are worshipping God at an edge and those who are influenced by the, let's call them the smart Alex, the, 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 you know, the, the, those who like to construct arguments about what they actually don't know. that indeed these people when they turn away from God it is not necessarily that they are worshipping idols or worshipping anything else but in fact Notice here, yad'u, not, not ya'bud, yad'u, they call upon. Or yad'u means they follow, they're influenced by. So, the irony is that human beings who often will reject God because they don't want to be influenced by reactionary ideas, as the Quran says, when when the prophets come and tell them believe in God and they say ذلك أساطير الأولين these are the these are the the um, uh, these are the um, what is the word I'm looking for uh, not for uh, fables these are the fables these are the mythology of of the of the of the forefathers, you know, th this is reactionary. This is backwards. I, in reality, it, it is they are rejecting Allah Haq, the 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 anchoring truth, in order to avoid the tautologies of truth, which are no truth at all. In all, in a, invariably, because they are, they 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 subjugate themselves they make themselves followers of 
they defer to its other human beings. So it, 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 the whole claim of independence and autonomy is a mirage. They are, they, they, the whole pretense of, oh, well, we're independent thinkers. No, you're actually more sheep, sheep-like than you, than you actually realize. You actually, there, there, it is, you are, your thinking is impressive because you define the parameters in such a, um, it's like, put it this way, if, if you make a very learned argument about the stars in our universe, right? And let's say, after listening to you, and let's say I, you know, I have perfect knowledge, and I say, well, you know, very good argument about the stars in the universe, but there's one problem. There are actually not one universe, there are 10 universes. So your argument has explained a very limited realm. It is impressive only because you've predefined the terms of the argument, so that is impressive within your parameters. But when within the parameters of al-haq, you only impress yourself. Because the reality is far greater than you could ever imagine. So, that is why Look at, I mean, your, your ancestors took the Quran far more seriously than they do. When Allah says, Allah describes this. Those who, you're actually deferring to either those who can't harm you or hurt you or those who hurt you. But then Allah describes this as, and then describes it as, you lead yourself it is what you you believe that it is a small thing to be following or deferring or being impressed by what you're impressed by being influenced by what you're influenced by but in reality where it takes you is that it leads you f- far astray and the company you keep is the worst kind of company. How does uh, Muhammad Asa translate that? Um, this is 13. Um, yeah, so he says, Vile indeed is such a patron and vile the follower. The company you've kept or like your 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 community, the, the 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 community that ultimately influences you, is truly vile, because ultimately it takes you down a vile path. Okay. Okay. So then, fourteen. Allah says, 
that Allah will reward those who resist us with heaven, etc. But pay attention then to 15. من كان يظن أن لا ينصره الله في الدنيا والآخرة فليمضي بسبب إلى السماء ثم فليقطع فلينظر هل يذهبن كيده ما ما يغيظ okay so Muhammad as his translation if anyone thinks that God will not secure him in this world and in the life to come let him reach out unto heaven by any other means and thus try to make headway and then let him see whether the scheme will indeed do away with the cause of his anguish what is this talking about one layer of meaning many common quranic commentators said well, what this is talking about is it's predicting that Allah will make the Prophet Muhammad والسلام, victorious. And that it is saying, those of you who think that ultimately God is not going to make the Prophet victorious, you can't change fate. In fact, I challenge you, go ahead, try to reach wherever you can reach in the heavens. See if you can change the fate that Allah has decreed. Why it is a plausible interpretation and I have uh, a feeling that, although I, um, I haven't checked, but I have a feeling that Muhammad Assad would not have accepted this translation. That's from his translation. Um, wait. Oh, that was yeah, okay, good, great. Yeah, look. So, this is Muhammad Assad's footnote. That God is not enough to secure him. Obviously an allusion to the type of man who worship God, worships God on the borderline of faith. Verse 11 above. And therefore doubt God's power to guide men towards happiness in this world and the hereafter. The presumption of the majority of commentators that the personal pronoun, him, relates to the Prophet Muhammad is to my mind very far-fetched and certainly not warranted by context. Excellent footnote. What he's talking about is that while it is true that the majority of Quranic commentators said exactly as I explained, that this is talking about God is going to make the Prophet victorious. Several Quranic commentators, among them is Zamakhshari, for instance, and Al-Razi, said, no, it is... It is not necessarily that just God is predicting that God will that the prophet will be victorious. But God is telling you that those who worship God at an edge 
are in a constant state of doubt and they grossly overestimate their knowledge and their abilities. It's like, you know, I've been giving examples of dimensions intentionally. It's like God saying, this experience. Let them go as far as they can in in this in this universe. See if they will actually attain any level of knowledge that will transcend what we allow them to attain and in my in my view in my in, in my understanding that will ultimately remain locked within the parameters of knowledge that allows that Allah allows to the empirical approach it's like Allah saying you exist in a reality, you will remain locked in this reality, regardless of how far your science takes you. It is always within the terms of the reality that Allah has predetermined, you will never transcend to the, to the greater realities that exist. Now, in this, people like Razi and Zamakshari, and I agree with them, is that Allah is telling you, if you heed the message of Surat al-Hajj, the promise of Nusra, the promise of victory, in the hereafter on this earth is valid. That it is not just God is promising the Prophet. God is promising human beings if this is the path they take, then Nasr, Allah's aid and support and victory is a covenant. It's a promise. Okay. Okay. So this is all like an, an introduction to Surah Al-Hajj. Then Surah Al-Hajj will move on to the next paragraph. Let's take a two-minute break before we go to the next paragraph. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Now, Look at the way this new paragraph in Surah Al-Hajj So Allah already introduced you it starts out with the, the imperative of taqullah and then 
takes you to 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 the that that consistent persistent core problem of the satanic influence and the the, the satanic tendencies and the satanic forces the shaitan marid and that you are you are the the, the arc of existence that but despite that just the very arc itself could tell you that the haq at the center of the arc, the truth at the center of this arc, because otherwise it's a tautology and it doesn't have a truth. But yet so many people, their relationship with God isn't on an edge. It never transcends the tautology of a relationship with itself, with the self. You actually, in the same way that you might live with someone for 30 years, 50 years, and you actually never got to know who this person is, leave alone fall in love with who this person is, you are always in your relationship with this person engaged in the tautology of a relationship with the self projected onto the other. So your relationship was always about what do I get out of it? Well, their relationship with God is the same. And they are, they're on an edge. And they are easily swayed when they're not getting out of this relationship what they think they're entitled to. They are easily swayed by the mujadala, by the, 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 the argumentation, the disputation, the smart aleck, the, 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 the pretense of intelligence. Okay. And Allah alerts you to the, this element that I was talking about, that well, you, know, you, you think you're so intelligent because you only exist in a very limited reality that you think is a complete reality, but it's not. Reality, if you only knew, you, you would realize it is far beyond this. So then... This, of course, begs the question, or at least where Surah Al-Hajj is going to take us, is, well, here, we Muslims are at this critical stage where they're getting rid of the persecution of Mecca and they're going to go to Medina, or they just arrived in Medina. And all the challenges that they're going to confront in Medina well, there's a very obvious question. With Allah's promise of victory, does this mean truth will reign supreme on this earth? Will it be that Islam will conquer all? And Allah comes and readies you for the response by saying, we pass over this all too quickly. Okay, so look. This is 
17. Those who believe, those who attain to faith, as Muhammad Azad puts it, in this divine writ, and those who are Jewish, and those who are Sabians, and the Christians, and the Magians, or the Zoroastrians, and those even who are bent on ascribing divinity to aught but God and Mushrikeen, the, the people who are associate partners with God. All of them, God will decide between them on the day of resurrection. So when it comes to thinking of ultimate fates, At this level, you all stand equal. The believers and the Mushrikeen and the Magians and the Sabians and the Christians and the Jews. So, if God is telling you that or if God is, will, will decide between you in the hereafter, The clear implication is that there will never be a situation where there are no Christians or no Jews or no Mushrikeen. It will always be the disagreement, the diversity in belief is when it comes to the, your material world, your realm of existence, it will always be that there are all these diverse beliefs and understand it is only God who will resolve these issues in the hereafter. Between you, you will always debate. You will always have the disputation. You will always have the mujadala. You will never get rid of the reality of Jidel. And it is God who will resolve issues in the hereafter, not now, between you. But then, as to the reality that you don't perceive and you don't understand. Alam tara, don't you see? Anna Allah yajidu lahu man fi samawati wa man fi al-ard. والشمس والقمر والنجوم والجبال والشجر والدواب وكثير من الناس وكثير حق عليه العذاب ومن يهن الله فما له من مكرم إن الله يفعل ما يشاء So now when it comes to the realm that people debate about without understanding to the realm which you do not understand and you do not know the reality of that realm is that the, what is in the, he the heavens and the earth itself prostrate before their Lord. And the sun and the moon and the stars and the mountains and the trees and all living things at the web, those who walk on earth. And many people. So when it came to people, it's many. 
But all these things are realities not accessible to you. They indeed already surrender and prostrate to God. You just don't realize it. And a reality that will often elude you because not all of you, only kathir min nas a lot of people, not even a majority of people, kathir, many people, but not most, not the majority, not definitely not all people. They do not submit and they do not prostrate. Uh, this is 17. Uh, and, and so God translates, I mean, Muhammad Asad translates this as, and he whom God shall scorn on resurrection day will have none who could bestow honor on him for God, for verily God does what God wills. Um, woman, that the truth of the matter, the reality that you do not perceive is that those that God allows to degrade or humiliate themselves, they have no other source of dignity. It is not the disputation or the reason that the, the state of deviance from God in itself is a degradation and a humiliation. And the only, we, and we, we, it's the only, it's before we've learned that the only source of Izzah is from Allah. But the only source of Karama, the only source of real dignity is Allah. هذان خصمان اختصموا في ربهم محمد اسد gets it i think more right than most when he says in his translation there are two contrary kinds of human beings have been engrossed in contention about their sustainer There are, it's like there are two antagonists. Ultimately, there are those who through their past will become the object of God's wrath and those who in their past will become the object, object of God's blessings. This is in the as to the in, the, in the hereafter, in the resurrection. But the reality of difference 
on this earth is unwavering, unchanging. Okay. Um, so this takes us to 23. Um, 24 is, deserves a, a short pause. Um, okay. وَهُدُوا إِلَى الطَّيِّبِ مِنَ الْقَوْلِ وَهُدُوا إِلَى صِرَاطِ الْحَمِيدِ So this is 24. And for they were willing to be guided towards the best of all tenants, and so they were guided unto the way that leads to the one unto whom all praise is due. Um, وَهُدُوا إِلَى الطَّيِّبِ مِنَ الْقَوْلِ وَهُدُوا إِلَى صِرَاطِ الْحَمِيدِ We're accustomed to the Qur'an using the expression صِرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ The straight path. But for one to be guided well, Muhammad Asad translates it. What, um, what did I just say? Twenty-one. Um, uh, guided unto towards the best of all tenets. Um, yes and no. Is that you are guided to um, you are guided to elevated beliefs, elevated reality, elevated truth that leads you to say what they what ultimately becomes your narrative what ultimately you generate in terms of speech speech or action is not just good but it is beyond good it is elevated and that is why it is not just a sirat al-mustaqim it's not just a straight path but it is sirat al-hamid that it is the path where you have that um, the path that results from a relationship with anchored in placing God in God's proper place in your reality. So Now, this all is in preparation for what Allah is going to tell this community that is going to be established or is just established. So, don't be like those who worship God on an edge. Understand that your arc of life has a truth. That truth is an elevated truth. 
you are not merely called upon to do what is simply correct, but as we will see, you are called upon to do what is morally and ethically elevated. So, from this point, Surah Al-Hajj comes and tells us, starts talking about those who have been expelled from a relationship to Al-Haram. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَيَصُدُّونَ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَالْمَجْرِدِ الْحَرَامِ الَّذِي جَعَلْنَاهُ لِلنَّاسِ سَوَاءً لِلْعَاكِفُ فِيهِ وَالْبَادِ وَمَنْ يُرِدْ فِيهِ بِإِلْحَادٍ بِظُلْمٍ نُذِقْهُ مِنْ عَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ So Allah then starts talking about those who were expelled from their relationship with Al-Masjid Al-Haram. Now, this is the, the Masjid in Mecca. And what does Allah tell us about this Masjid? Allah says, جَعَلْنَاهُ لِلنَّاسِ فِيهِ وَالْبَادِ We've made it for open this is a sacred space, open, whether for those who live there or those who do not live there. First, let's start with, begin with Muhammad Asad's translation and then move on. Okay. So, those who are bent to denying the truth and bar others from the path of God and from the inviolable house of worship which we have set up for all people alike, both those who dwell there and those who come from abroad, and all who seek to profane it by deliberate evil doing, all shall, such shall be such shall we cause to taste grievous suffering in the life to come. Okay. وَمَنْ يُرِدْ فِيهِ بِإِلْحَادٍ بِظُلْمٍ نُذِقُهُ مِنْ عَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ So, those who seek to commit ilhad, and ilhad is zulm. Ilhad is disbelief or denying God. But then, right after that, Allah starts telling us continue the story of Ibrahim and his relationship with this house. Okay, now we'll see why this is really important. So, وَإِذْ بَوَّأْنَا لِإِبْرَاهِيمَ مَكَانِ الْبَيْتِ أَنْ لَا تُشْرِكَ بِي شَيْئًا وَطَهِّرْ بَيْتِي لِلطَّائِفِينَ وَالْقَائِمِينَ وَالْرُكَّعِ السُّجُودِ So, we've given the place of this house the place of this space to Ibrahim. But the end la tushrik bi shay'a wa tahir bayti li ta'ifina wal qa'imina wal rukka sujud. 
But the relationship of Ibrahim to this space, to this house, the establishment of the space in itself was made conditional. Conditional on what? Conditional that Ibrahim will purify, will maintain the space pure as a space dedicated to the worship of Allah. And it is a space for the ta'ifin, those who are uh, uh, going around the Kaaba as, as later on, and those who are there in a state of iqama and worship. And those who are in state of ruku'a and state of sujood. Now, why is this important? Because this space was established for the specific purpose of serving God's defined objectives. What emerged after Ibrahim are the practices of Quraysh in this space. The practices, however, were a violation of the terms upon which Ibrahim established this house. Now, why is this important? Because Allah is saying, this will especially, this is not a space to be shared. Although the truth, although diversity will continue to exist on earth, and also Allah will resolve this diversity in the hereafter. When it comes to this space, this is a space given, revealed to Ibrahim for the specific purpose of worth of, of upholding and affirming the primordial truth that so many people deny. The truth of Ibrahim and the truth of Muhammad. This is why this space cannot be shared between Muslims and the Mushrikeen, the Kuffar. I've seen in Islamophobic circles, and I've seen among ex-Muslims, they come and say, oh, well, the Quraysh, they complained that the Muhammad insulted their gods. How intolerant of Muhammad. Oh, why can Muhammad come and end and destroy the idols and end worship? Because this location was established by Ibrahim on the condition this was revealed by God 
the 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 very terms of that space from the beginning was Islam. And it is Quraysh who with the passage of time had violated these terms. So this is why the the area of Al-Haram al-Makki or the or, or or even possibly entire Mecca but this is a whole debate but is an exclusively Muslim Abrahamic area because these were the terms that upon which the space was established in the first place so in other words it is Quraysh that is in a state of violation by introducing all the idolatry practices that in violation of the revelation given to Ibrahim. I mean, SubhanAllah, it's like I've seen, I was reading this thing by some, you know, typical of these kids that love to, you know, ex-Muslims and so on. They think they're so brilliant. I mean, the, the sacred the idea of sacred exclusive space does not in any way is not in any way contrary to the idea of tolerance because sacred space that is exclusive to a faith is entirely normal and especially when the Quran itself tells us that this space from the beginning was a space dedicated for a purpose and it is those who corrupted those purposes who in fact were in a state of violation not those who are reclaiming the space for its purpose so and so Allah so purify the space to Ibrahim. And that is the charge for the prophets is that if the space is to be used at all, it must be used, it must be purified for the purposes for which it was established. Otherwise, the establishment of the space is pointless. Okay. The other really important point here, here is that this space as we, the the Baiti is is yet to come but okay this space is to be open for the purposes of worshiping God. In Islamic law that Muslims have completely ignored, there was a debate about whether Mecca, the entire of Mecca, is known as a sawaib or a sa'iba.
Because it is open space, because it is sacred space, that those who have homes there have a right to their homes. Although some fuqaha disagreed, including reportedly Omar ibn Khattab um, disagreed. And because Omar and, and some fuqaha said, no one is entitled to own property in Mecca. All of Mecca must be collectively owned by all Muslims. But that was a minority opinion. Most said it's a sa'iba. Sa'iba means that those who already have homes there, they have a right to their property. But beyond the homes that are already owned there, after Fath Mecca, all sales and rentals of property in Mecca are illegal. So, in fact, there is a hadith, and not just one, there are actually many, but the most famous of which says, Mecca Mubaha, la tu'jar biyutuha. Mecca is collective ownership, collectively owned. Its homes cannot be rented and its fields cannot be bought or sold. So there is many, most jurists in Islamic history said that you can't it's not legal it's not lawful to rent or buy in Mecca the idea is what that it must remain open space for Muslims where only collective homes are established on egalitarian principles. So if you can't sell a rental, then what is the medium upon which we decide who gets to stay in the collective housing created by the authorities? And Muslim jurists would say, first come, first serve. In the same way that you have egalitarian principles, when you do Hajj, the Mecca can never be allowed to be a place of, for market competition, for competition, real estate competition, for expensive rentals and cheap rentals, expensive property and cheap property. This is why there's an Hazar hadith among many, which in which the Prophet said, If someone engages in a monopolistic practices in Mecca, it's one thing to to commit to to commit sinful acts in sale and buying and selling. But if you commit it in Mecca, it's equal to al-had, it's equal to kufr, it's equal to leaving the faith altogether. 
the sin in Mecca of of the sin in Mecca of practices that would target the unprivileged is equal to kufr. It's so grave a sin that when Allah says that this is space dedicated to Allah, then it must reflect principles that are that reflect purely egalitarian principles. We all wear the same thing when we go to Hajj. We all, we even sewing. Why is sewing not allowed? So that you can't have rich classes and poor classes. The distribution of food, it must be either prices that everyone can afford or distributed freely in Mecca. So, in fact, there is a hadith that says that مجرد إرادة الظلم في مكة محاسب عليها that everywhere else on earth Allah doesn't hold you accountable for your intentions. You, If you intend injustice but not committed, you're not accountable. You must commit injustice before you're held accountable. Except in Mecca. In Mecca, even just intending injustice, you're accountable. So, most jurists said, when Allah says, Man yurid fi means that dhulm, injustice in Mecca, is equal to ilhad, is equal to leaving Islam altogether. Now, Look how far we strayed from that idea. That this has to be open space. This is why Mecca in history was a sanctuary. Every person who was persecuted, they would escape to Mecca. It's a sanctuary. This is why also Mecca, before modern Saudi Arabia and colonialism, was the most culturally diverse part of the Muslim world. And this is also why, until the modern age was colonialism and Saudi Arabia, you would visit, even till the 60s, you would visit Mecca and you would be struck by the fact that there are no rich homes and poor homes. For centuries, that you could not, if you, if you, you if those who own property in Mecca could not raise the price of rentals. In other words, prices were flattened and regulated. And it was always first come serve basis because there were heavy restrictions on what type of um, gateways you can create to, in terms of access to Mecca. The last Hajj 
not only Saudi Arabia decided that all, for what Muslims in the West, all Hajj has to go through the company that, that company that is owned by, in part by the, the Islamophobic Indian nationalists, uh, Modi's people. Um, but it was irregular thing was twenty thirty thousand dollars, and a lot of people who had made their bookings, giving the money to travel agencies according to the old regulations. That that company said that's none of our business. Even if you paid, you have to pay all over again. And many people who paid had their reservations canceled, or so an enormous amount of corruption. Other than the fact that today, Mecca is far from a classless society. Leave alone far from an open space. Getting a visa to go to Mecca is a very big deal and a very costly thing. Muslims today think that this is the norm, think that it's always been like that. Muslims will sit there and talk to you about the Sunnah of the Prophet. What we are doing to Mecca is, is a violation of Allah's teaching in the Quran, a violation of the Sunnah, a violation of the balance of Sharia for most of Islam's existence, the extent to which you can tell that you are the products of thoroughly colonized minds is that you actually think that whether the voice of woman is aura or not is a big issue. But what is going on to in Mecca is a minor issue. That speaks volumes the extent to which you are thoroughly the product of a brainwashing of centers of power that tell you how to think and what to think about. Allah says, جَعَنَّاهُ لِلنَّاسِ سَوَاءً الْعَاكِفُ فِيهِ وَالْبَادِ We've made, we've made this accessible. We've given it to whether those who live there or those who visit. Really? Today's Mecca is accessible to those who live there or those who visit? The very visa system that we take for granted is highly problematic. The very system of pay in advance before you can even set foot is highly problematic. The very system where some people can stay in hotel rooms overseeing the Haram and the Kaaba while those who don't have the money must stay in hotel rooms that are far away and they have to walk several kilometers for every prayer is not problematic. It is straight out Haram. It is no question about it. Haram. Okay. The, when you ask the vast majority of Muslims today and say, what does the meaning, uh, what does Mecca is a sa'iba mean? They, they will look at you and have no clue. 
so-called so experts on Sharia. They'll just look at you and say, no clue. This past Hajj, Saudi Arabia allowed an Israeli journalist to go and turn Mecca into a tourist site. Israeli television was broadcasting the Hajj as this guy was going around filming it. Allah didn't allow Mecca to be a tourist site. Mecca is Allah's space. And the terms of that space was set by Allah to the Prophet Ibrahim until the Prophet Muhammad. It has a very special status, thoroughly purified. And that is precisely why it was possible or allowable for the Prophet upon conquering Mecca to say only Islam. Everywhere else in the world, you cannot make it only Islam. You're not allowed. But in Mecca, you can. Okay. So then, when Allah takes us back to the Prophet Ibrahim Bawa'na means we, we've dedicated and foretold and informed Ibrahim the place of the bait, of the house. On the condition or with that you are going to purify and it must be purified for express purposes. Then we've told Ibrahim, call people to Hajj. So then, this is 27. Proclaim unto all people the duty of pilgrimage. They will come unto you on foot and on every kind of mound. Come from every faraway point on earth. Okay. There is the very famous set of traditions, cluster of traditions, that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells Ibrahim, Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam, do call upon people to come to Hajj, the Prophet Ibrahim responds, وَمَا يَبْلُغُ صوتي. Who's going to hear me? This is a desolate part of the desert. No one is around. You, you know, literally, I got orders from you, God, to start putting stones here, me and my son Ismail, to, you know, put these heap of stones, and then call, and the response that the Prophet Ibrahim 
gets is your obligation is to call it is up to me how or who hears this call this became in the Islamic tradition you know how often in, in because of course Christians did far more in serve their traditions than, than Muslims. Muslims, Christians extracted something called the Protestant ethic. In many ways, this in Islam is equal to the Protestant ethic in Islam. Your job is to perform your duty, to make the effort. The consequences, the results, are up to God, not up to you. That's the the critical lesson, and it is a critical lesson that is affirmed when Allah says to the وَأَذِنْ فِي النَّاسِ بِالْحَجِّ أَتُوكَ رِجَالًا وَعَلَى كُلِّ ضَامِرٍ يَأْتِينَ مِنْ فَجْرٍ عَمِيقٍ and the Prophet ﷺ underscores that Allah obligates the Prophet Ibrahim to call at a time when all rational indicators would have said it is useless to make the call. And it is a critical lesson at the beginning of the Medinian period because so much of the effort that will be put in is beyond the cost-benefit analysis. It is the obligation to do what is right and leave the results up to Allah, whether in fact what bears fruit and how it bears fruit, that is up to God. Okay. So, now, so the, the people will come from from prediction from Allah that people will, will be coming from you know every faraway place. Let's first take the translation. Um, so yeah, Muhammad as it says, so that they might experience much that shall be of benefit to them, and that they might extol the name of God on the days appointed for sacrifice, over whatever of heads of camel God may have provided for them. To this end, eat then thereof and feed the unfortunate poor. Um, yeah. لِيَشْهَدُوا مَنَافِعَ لَهُمْ 
many commentators took this to mean that God is saying it's permissible while at Hajj to engage in commerce. That Allah, although says, the, although the Prophet, you know, puts this warning that Mecca cannot become subject to marketplace rules. That if you think that therefore it is illegal to buy or sell things during Hajj, that's not true. Um, the way Muhammad Asad understands it is, I think, far more accurate and it is consistent with the way people like Zamakhshari and also Razi understood it. Uh, that is, it's not about commerce. That's that there are benefits for the simple gathering of Muslims as a symbol of unity and equality among all in this place is a moral bond, a moral brotherhood that in that is a moral good in and of itself. And the point of the remembrance of Allah. Now, why the mention, mentioning here behemoth an'am? So we know that there is a gathering, and this in this gathering, there is the sacrifice of animals, and it is clearly indicated that the sacrifice is for it'am al-ba'is al-faqir. So, Mecca becomes a center in which if you are poor and you want to make sure that you are, that you go to a place where the most expensive food, which is meat, is always available, you live in Mecca. And in fact, it played that role. So even until the 50s and 60s, before Saudi Arabia started really, you know, forgetting about any Islamic, uh, uh, um, any Islamic tenets and any Islamic parameters, you still, when you would go to Mecca, you would find a huge population of people that are indigent. They're, they're, they're the, the, the poorest of the poor that came from Sudan, came from Ethiopia, came from Tanzania, came from Mauritania, came from Yemen, and they live in the vicinity of the Mecca because they know that they can be fed for free. What happens then in the 80s and 90s is that the Saudi Arabia starts 
regardless of how long these people have been living there, it starts arresting these people and deporting them in mass. And and because it it the the whole distribution of food and even the distribution of zamzam water becomes commercialized, uh, then these a lot of these populations turn to crime to survive. But that's because suddenly the the, the charitable network that used to exist in Mecca for centuries was was drying up. But notice here, which will be elaborated upon further as we go, that Allah will alert us in coming verses, but it begins here, that this sacrifice of animals is only allowable because of the license you get from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put differently numerous jurists said that the killing of anything the extermination of any life other than than in the name of Allah is a grave sin. So if it hadn't been for the permission given by God, the very idea of the consumption of another thing in order to promote yourself would would have no legitimacy. That is why the remembrance, the, the name of Allah is required. Does this mean that, because that question has come up in, 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 in the past, what if you say, I am willing to feed, I am, I'm going to feed, but I don't want to feed by sacrificing the animal. And the answer is, as long as what you feed is of what the highest class eats, then you can replace the sacrifice of an animal. In other words, you cannot replace it by, for instance, say, instead of meat, I'm going to serve cheese. Why? Because cheese is far cheaper than meat. And cheese is not what the richest class consumes. But if you say, instead of meat, I'm going to serve caviar, go for it. You know, I don't know. I, I don't eat caviar, but it's what I could think of, of something expensive. I guess rich people eat caviar, I guess. I don't know. Um, so th the point is, in that space, you are eradicating obstructions to accessibility and also eradicating the idea that you have people who eat you know, certain quality of food 
and others who eat a much cheaper quality of food. Okay. Now, This is 29. Then Allah continues on to say, Thereafter, let them bring to an end their state of self-denial, and let them fulfill the vows which they may have made, and let them walk once again around the most ancient temple. We're going to pause you for a second. Okay. So, they, during that period of pilgrimage, you refrain from, after the haram, you refrain from cutting your nails or cutting your hair, or there there are restrictions as to... um, Anything that you do that involves going against what a complete state of nature is, let's put it that way. But before the ihram, you in fact, you you rid yourself of all dirt. So before you enter the ihram, you're supposed to cut your nails, clean your nails, you're supposed to cleanse yourself. The state of ihram is a state of purity. And then it's a state of abstention and self-denial until the ihram is over. There's some theological issues is is God saying that you whatever you um, um, so that you um, Yeah, is it that you're fulfilling vows as in, you know, God, if you give me X, Y, and Z, I vow to do this? Or is it that you are fulfilling your covenants, vows in the sense of covenants? Um, This is a theological issue that, I mean, you have some... Because the implication is that whether it's a desirable thing or or even an acceptable thing that you engage in this type of vow making where you say God, if X if you do X Y and Z for me, uh, I will vow to do such and such when I go to Mecca. Um, the short answer is. I don't think that that's what this the, here the Quran is talking about. The the the, the here that Allah is talking about is the 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 vows that you owe God that are discharged 
by visiting Mecca and engaging in pilgrimage. So God is not talking about you know the vows that you make in terms of trade-offs with with God. Okay. So notice here that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then refers the 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 Kaaba or the Mecca, the, the Haram is referred to only in Surah Al Hajj as Al Bayt Al Atiq. Can be translated as the ancient um as Muhammad Asad puts it, the most ancient temple um, or the very old temple. The reason he resorts to temple because Allah doesn't call it a masjid here. Allah talks calls it a bayt, like Bayt al-Maqdis, the, the, the temple on the mount. But in Surah Al-Hajj, Allah refers to this space as Al-Bayt Al-Atiq. And Al-Atiq doesn't just means, or mean old, but it, it means the most old. And in Surah Al-Hajj, Allah uses the expression Al-Bayt Al-Atiq twice. And the only place where in the Quran it's referred to as Al-Bayt Al-Atiq. In my view, it is not just that the issue is not a chronology. It's not whether, as you know, the, as those who have too much time on their hand start getting into a debate whether you know um, Mecca is older or Jerusalem is older or or the Aqsa Mosque is older. That's neither here nor there. It is referred to as al-Bayt al-Atiq, as a primordial. It's like saying it is timeless. Allah revealed this place to the Prophet Ibrahim, and as Allah says, for the purposes that the Prophet Ibrahim would purify or would make sure it, it remains purified. But the grammatical expression, by saying, revealed the place, it is as if it is timeless. It is, it's, it's, it's sacredness didn't start at the point that the Prophet Ibrahim puts the rocks for the Kaaba. The grammatical form, it's as if it even predates the Prophet Ibrahim. Now, this led to, again, speculation, traditions that are not reliable, that tell you, oh, this is the spot where Adam and Eve first came to earth, and I'm not going to get into that. I mean, these traditions are not, um, none of them are, are um, or that, you know, yeah, or some that tell you this is the spot where, you know, first Gabriel, angel Gabriel came to earth, and you get a lot of um, 
narrations that are just not where you can't rely on any of them. But it is this is is place that has a very special status. We are not free to do with the space as we will. We are not free to definitely not put Big Ben clocks there or put Hilton's and Sheraton's there. We are not free to put, you know, fast food restaurants there. We are not free to just simply do whatever we wish. This is a space chosen by God for reasons that are beyond us. It is like Allah from the beginning telling us there are things that are beyond your reasoning. And it is like those, when I tell you, you know, go ahead in the heavens, your knowledge will never understand all there is to understand. Why this space? Why this spot? All you have to do is simply accept that it has to be on Allah's terms, not yours. What time is it? Uh, it's my turn. My turn. Okay. Zarika, وَمَنْ يُعَظِّمُ حُرُمَاتِ اللَّهِ فَهُوَ خَيْرٌ لَهُ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِ وَأُحِلَّتْ لَكُمُ الْأَنْعَامُ إِلَّا مَا يُتْلَى عَلَيْكُمْ فاجتنبوا الرجس من الأوثان واجتنبوا قول الذور. So this is 30. All this is ordained by God. And if one honors God's sacred commandments, it will redound to his own good in his sustainer's sight. And all kinds of cattle has been made lawful to you for sacrifice and food, save what is mentioned to you as forbidden. Shun then all that God has forbidden, and most of all, the loathsome evil of idolatrous beliefs and practices. Unshun every word that is untrue. This is Muhammad's Asad translation, but let me... Okay. So, first, then we get the first mention of يُعَظِّمْ حُرُمَاتِ That expression. So, core to what you're called upon you to do is what this expression, Ta'zim al-Hurumat. Al-Hurumat are God's sacred boundaries. Whatever God tells you is God's space, that's Hurumat Lillah. Yu'adhim Hurumat is beyond simply respecting these boundaries or even beyond just honoring these boundaries. Yu'azzim al-hurumat 
is when you elevate these boundaries so that they become the center point for what you do. Now, this is a very important idea because we will come back to it in the same surah. So, here, when it comes to this space that you Muslims are being expelled from, and Muslims who have left Mecca and went to Medina don't know if they're ever going to see it again, will understand that this is a very a space of a very special status. But your entire, what Allah calls upon you to do is to, as you're establishing this new society, a society which will have to deal with temporal demands and temporal things, but it is also a society which is called upon to understand what is sacred space and to elevate the sacred to a central point. And part of that sacred understanding of the sacred and the role of the sacred is to understand that you may not sacrifice except within the realm of what Allah said is allowable. And this is where the idea of you cannot take life except what except by Allah's permission, which I already talked about. That when it comes to all living things, the only reason you can slaughter something to eat it, if it hadn't been for the relationship that you have with God, it would not be legitimate. And istinab rishtal awsan. So, and the, the the idols are a corruption. And as so many commenters have noted, that idols are not not necessarily just the, the physical idols, but the idols are anchored in the heart because there are many things. There are equal corruption and sometimes even worse corruption. And Surah Al-Hajj will actually allude to that in a, in a little bit. وَاشْتَرِبُوا قَوْلَ Now this, several commentators noticed how unusual and marvelous. So Allah comes and says, okay, sacred space, 
elevate the sacred to its proper place, which is truly a central place. Okay, we get that. Understand that you don't have, that, that you may not take life. You have no just, you have no legitimacy. There is no legitimacy for taking anything living except by God's permission. Okay. And know that idols, even in, with all their forms, are nothing short of a foul corruption. Okay, we get that. But then Allah comes and says, and ever be mindful of speaking the truth. It's like saying, if you accept a life in which azur, the untruth, is unspoken and tolerated, then Ibn Arabi actually says this outright, says then the possibility of doing all the aforementioned becomes indeed remote, if not vanishes altogether. Now, this, however, although Ibn Arabi doesn't say this, will become very important as we learn what Allah tells us in the rest of Surah Al-Hajj about our obligation to testify. That Allah tells us, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit because we're going to stop for tonight, that Allah tells us that all of this is because you have a charge and the charge is to bear witness for God. And that is why Wajdanibu Kaula Zur is placed here. It's like I am Mecca itself plays a critical symbolic role, but more importantly, it's a morally anchoring role. The sacred space that Mecca plays is a morally anchoring role. It's a role about the nature of your ummah, at least in this space, the nature of equality, the nature of equal equal access and equal opportunity and possibility, at least in this space, and about the nature of what is a proper 
abode, and we'll get to the to, to the to what Surat Hash says about al bayt. And as you look, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, inshallah, for the next halakha, that as you look at, at your own bait, your own abode, compare it to the ideal of God's abode, al-bayt al-atiq. Now, of course, the problem is if you've corrupted the bayt al-atiq, then, of course, when you compare a corrupt home, your own private home, to a corrupt ideal, the, the Bayt al-Atiq is both corrupt. So you're completely lost. And that's why Muslims are completely lost. But if the Bayt al-Atiq is, in fact, where it should be, and you are comparing... The, anch- the, the ark of my abode to the, the primordial abode, the sacred abode, and then the comparison becomes a matter of moral measure. And it is as if It is collectively, you know, it's, it's sort of like collectively, all of us, all Muslims, they have the assurance of a home in this primordial sacred space. The a sense of deep belonging in that sacred space. They visited, but they visited because it is a part of their consciousness, always, as their, as their, as their home by right, because it is God's primordial home. We'll, we'll get there, inshallah. Okay, so we let, let's stop here for tonight. This is verse 30 then, because I'm going to forget where we stopped. Um, I didn't think Surat al-Hajj would be done in one session, but let's see if we'll finish it on Tuesday. Okay. Alhamdulillah. Okay, alhamdulillah. Um what can I say other than I feel like when we learn about where, what is intended by Mecca, I mean, a lot of this is, I'm sure, new to modern Muslims. And so it's really, um, it's earth shattering and stunning and, and really sad to see how far we've come, you know, with everything going on at Hajj and Mecca. And, um, you know, it all, again, starts with education. So it has to begin with us returning to this foundation which you know i've never heard elsewhere and i'm so grateful to know um as depressing as it may be at least it's the start of something um hopefully the start of something that can turn around and change in the future um because i think when you see 
even like that, you know, the video on social media of the Israeli journalist that was able to, you know, drive around Hajj and film it. it it's like, I think people knew it was wrong, but not, not necessarily knew why it was wrong. And I mean, maybe some people did. I mean, I can say I, I didn't have what I learned tonight to point to and say, okay, this is exactly why this is so obscene and how we should just be so outraged um, that this was allowed to you know, happen. So um, thank you so much, Sheikh, for always elevating our, our knowledge and connection um, and making all of this just come alive again and real for us as Muslims. Like, so we have something to reclaim and something very substantial to hold on to. Um, that we can begin to hopefully build from and, and change, inshallah. So, um, inshallah, we look forward to seeing everybody on Tuesday, which will be probably our last Tuesday session for the summer since we're going to be starting the new semester after that. Um, so it's uh, a bit bittersweet, <laughs> but alhamdulillah, so grateful for any opportunity for us to be able to be together. And inshallah, I'm so excited to see you, inshallah next Tuesday. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.